when you encounter somebody who's really into Bitcoin, they're passionate about it, they're zealots about it. It's almost like a vegan in a way. They want to tell you right away that they're into Bitcoin and right away what you can do to help change the world and why it's so important. This is the Bitcoin Muse, and I'm Clay Enos. This week on the world's premier Bitcoin art podcast, I'm joined by my friend Michael Gambino, co-owner with his wife Lisa of an advertising agency, Kangbino, a college professor, a painter, an illustrator, a filmmaker, a musician, needless to say, a creative fellow. We sat down together in my living room to bring his unique perspective on the matters of Bitcoin art and creativity. While he's not as steeped in the Bitcoin ethos as I am, I think his innate sense of curiosity and open-mindedness is a treat to explore and to bounce ideas off. We've been friends a long time, and he's endured any number of my attempts to orange-pill him and his wife. He's always asked interesting questions of me along the way, and today's conversation was no exception. It's just us sitting in the same room, a first for this podcast, and letting the conversation drift naturally across the landscape of art and Bitcoin. He's the kind of person who makes a good barometer of where we might be in the timeline of the emergent Renaissance 2.0, and I hope you agree. Before we get into it, I'd love if you could take a minute to rate, review, and share this podcast on your social feeds and with your real-life friends. And remember, if you're listening on a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain or Breeze, 10% of all those streams and boosts go to OpenSats to help fund Bitcoin and other free and open-source projects. Also, a quick note. We recorded this podcast a few months ago, and I was holding it in reserve. As a result, I broke my streak of mentioning pub keys somewhere in our chat. Instead, I just said it now, so I'm going to say that counts. Cheers to all of you listening to and sharing the Bitcoin Muse, and enjoy this episode with Michael Gambino. I haven't gotten the whole uh, podcast flow where I introduce. I do all that later. <laughs> Good. After you've had the conversation, here's a guy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a little pre-interview. We'll be chit-chatting beforehand, and then... All of a sudden, we're on a topic. Yeah. This seems a little weird to now pretend, hello, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> so glad you could come. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about yourself. I don't have the NPR. I probably do have the NPR vibe, but I'm not as slick. Yeah. So, Terry Gross, eat your heart out. Should I turn this on? Sure. Hey. All right. Yeah. Fun to be in person. Yeah, yeah. And, well, full disclosure, we're friends. We've been friends a long time. You're a, a professor at FIT. What do you teach? I teach film and video. I teach uh, design. And uh, advertising concepts, which seems a, a, like an elusive thing, but it's just really coming up with ideas. Cool. You're the creative director. You were a creative director at big ad agencies here in New York. And now you and your wife have created your own firm. Yeah, yeah. We worked at BBDO and DDB and Mechanic, some big places like that, on you know their biggest brands. And now we got sick of it. And I don't think you can get us a step in those places ever again. But uh, yeah, but now we have our own place and we kind of pick the clients that we want to work for, the kind of work we want to do. And if people get too disagreeable, we no longer work with them. That's nice. I guess that's it's a version of fuck you money, but not quite. Exactly. <laughs> it kind of is. <laughs> I wouldn't use that term, but yeah. I mean, really, after a while... I think the thing is, is when you work with uh, smaller clients like we're working with now, they can really appreciate all the, the wealth of experience that I have and my wife has, you know, each of us has over 20 years. So 
when we give them something, when we give them work, it's really thought through from strategy all the way through to how it'll be produced and the ultimate budget of what a year looks like or two years looks like. And people are pretty amazed that we've gone to that length, but it's just a natural thing that we do. And you're lean and mean, a two-person operation. Yeah. Luckily, we have so many friends, and they all want to work for us. And I've had so many, you know, I ask them, how much would it be for you to write a campaign for this? And they go, how much do you have, Mike? And that's how much it'll be. (laughs) You know, and some people even say, you don't have to pay us if you don't want to pay us. I'm working at some huge agency making a check. I'll just do it because I like to do it for you. So we get the... We get to bring in talent that our small brands otherwise could never afford. That's cool. Obviously, we live in a world now where there's a ton of creative talent in these agencies, stuck in some cases, and you've, you've found your way out. Also, I forgot to mention that you're a painter as well, doing fairly abstract uh, yeah. paintings. Yeah, so it's funny because we went to a friend who had a, a party at his agency. He's got an agency of about 30 people, does mostly media work. And he had a party where, where the highlight of the party was all the people who worked for him. One person would get up and read a poem. The next person would play a song that they wrote. Some guy got up and read his love letter to his girlfriend, wow. <laughs> which is Awkward. pretty pretty cool. Um, but he said that 20-somethings now don't necessarily want to come into the office. And he said he overheard someone saying that they hate this place. <laughs> so he said, let's have more parties and more bonding sessions and also give make an opportunity for them to express themselves the way they would want to showcase their talents to the world. So it's interesting because I know people who have day jobs who've gone on to write Tony award-winning plays and win Pulitzer Prize, but they're stuck in an agency doing expense sheets. Brutal. You know, the good news is it's sort of like a patronage in that these agencies will be your patron while you're getting your act together, while you're writing the great American novel at night. You can get a, a check in something that seems creative, yeah? Yeah. I think uh, the Bitcoiners call it fiat mining. Oh, yeah? Where you're just, you're just there getting the dollars to buy your Bitcoin. Yeah. And obviously, they have dreams probably beyond that. Yeah. But we'll have to sort of wait for Bitcoin to do its thing. You know, some people think of it literally as that. I am doing this for that. And others are creative people. And they're told this is a creative profession. Making ads for McDonald's is a creative profession. Which it is to an extent is problem solving. But usually within about 8 or 10, 12 years, they start to realize, hey, wait a minute, I'm angry (laughs) because I have been doing the thing that I love to do, my creative thing. And I've been working eight hours a week for multi-billion dollar conglomerates, right? It's an epiphany. So then people do stand up or do whatever, kind of get the feeling back. Yeah. And I wonder too, if it isn't the worst thing in the world for that youthful naivete to not necessarily be spent out into the world that it can mature and simmer and ferment or whatever right like a good wine yeah and then when it does bubble up and bubble over and it's time for them to do their thing there's a more mature voice expressing themselves that could just be an old man talking yeah i mean who knows you don't really know it depends on i guess person to person some people by the time they wake up it's kind of too late i want to be an actor all right, you're 43 years old. It's an uphill climb for an 18-year-old. It depends on a person to person. You know, other people I know, like my writing partner at BBDO, he woke up every morning, 5.30 in the morning, to write novels. And then he would come into work at 10.30, you know, like everyone else. And I said, is it hard to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning? He said, no, every morning I ask myself, are you a writer or not? 
And the answer is yes. So I get up and I write for four hours and I'm spent writing and I go on to work. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's discipline. Yeah. Which isn't what we normally associate with an artist. And now if you run that into the, and I, I don't mean to be flippant with that idea, but it isn't discipline I associate with the Marines. Right. Not creative endeavor. Well, typically discipline is the, the doing something that you hate to do. You need discipline to do that thing. But you also need discipline to do the thing that you love. And uh, about three years ago, I decided every day I was going to do a painting and a drawing. Every day, a painting and a drawing. And initially, it was difficult, not only for myself, but the people who live with me. Where are you going now? Well, I'm going into a room for three hours. You just got out of the room. You just were in there for three hours. Yeah, I'm going back in to make my drawing now. And now, you know, my wife is like, it's 10 o'clock. Aren't you going to go in the room for six hours? Now it's like, it's more difficult for me not to do it than it is for me to do it. Because if it's 10 o'clock and I haven't started a painting, I start to get very itchy because the routine is every day. Cool. Yeah. Well, using those ideas of discipline and maybe, uh, let's say, delaying your dream mm. in a professional environment, you're also in academia with these young kids yeah. who are naive, passionate, yeah. All, all the beautiful things that we can associate with youth and creative imagination. Do you see prospects or is that a bright and optimistic place for you? Yeah. And, well, in every class of 25 students, uh, I've been teaching for 10 years now. So there's always one that's one student that's amazing that could really outdo me. Just so talented and ambitious and ideas are fresh and limitless energy to work on them. There's always one, and then there's usually a satellite of about two or three students around that one who just use that person as a, a high watermark, and they want to keep at that level somehow, and they're always comparing themselves to that or trying to stay with that. And then there's the rest of the class, which is 21 people. Some barely show up, and others are in and out or are barely good. I think there's a Pareto distribution there, right? It's, yeah. It's sort of 80-20 or whatever. It yeah. It focuses on a few. If you have five in a class out of 25 who are just terrific, and what a great year you're having. But of course, I, like, I've always had teachers that taught down to the lowest common denominator. They slow down the class so the slowest can keep up, but I never do that. I always teach to the, the people at the top because they deserve it, and the rest should keep up or not keep up. That's cool. And 10 years, so it's obviously a satisfying part of your life. Yeah. Yeah, I miss it when I'm not doing it. Initially, I got into it because I wanted to know what young people are into, what they think, what they're listening to, what music they're listening to, what they care about. And I found 10 years ago that, I know this was probably a, a millennial thing where a lot of students were hanging out with their parents and they liked their parents and they would go to Beyonce concerts with their parents. And to me, it seems so, as a Gen Xer, it seems so against everything I stood for. You should listen to music your parents hate. They should be complaining about you being too loud and why don't you come home? And you should be rebellious. And those kids, those millennial kids, were never, never seemed rebellious to me. So I wasn't learning the thing that I wanted to learn from them, which was what is this subculture, this anti-culture thing? But I think now we're starting to see, you know, the 20-year-olds now have a very specific point of view that's very new and <laughs> yeah, they're I'll totally say. invested in and, and uh, there's a lot of learning to be done in that. And I'm curious to see after the pandemic 
is over and we're in class now, how that all plays out. So that there may be an aspect, a fad, rebellion aspect to, to the more controversial ideas of uh, gender, whatever, non-conformity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. To me, it almost echoes like the hippie culture from the 70s and that this new culture came around and the previous culture didn't know what to make of these guys with long hair and flower shirts and stuff like that. And the way they speak is kind of completely different coded language that they adults can't understand and experimenting with all kinds of drugs and gender and sexuality and things like that. The funny thing is, is those people went on to be the most conservative people we know. Those are the people screaming at Fox News now, right? <laughs> yeah. So they went through all that and came out the other end and said, no, we we're wrong. <laughs> it's best to just be conservative and puritanical <laughs> and afraid of everybody. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think it almost feels like over the of your 80-year march that there's balance finds itself somehow. You can't... Uh, you know, I can eat peanut butter and jellies for the first 20 years of my life, and then I probably won't for the next 60. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> to keep it on a lighter topic. I think we've all been through that. And even if you're just 25 or 30 years old, you've been through a thing where like, hey, girlfriend, maybe we should experiment sexually with other people. And uh, you try it and you go, that was a mistake. <laughs> wow, we can't even look at each other, you know. Or something like that, which the hippies kind of did. Sure. They wanted to recreate a brave new world, and they kind of retreated back into the 50s. Yeah. Well, this is a Bitcoin podcast, and it's a Bitcoin podcast focused on creative endeavor and talking mostly with artists and folks that that revolve around Bitcoin. Bitcoin's the star of the class, yeah. to evoke your, your classroom story. And the artists, or the, the ones I'd like to talk to, are the two or three... Uh, keeping close to the high watermark that is Bitcoin. So your perspective here is valuable in that you have this kind of zoomed out view of culture and of creators and aspiring creators. You're one yourself. And I wonder, given the radical nature of what Bitcoin posits, how we as creative people are supposed to address it and get our head around it. Prior to recording, you were talking about something that I thought was really nice. That when you hear people talk about Bitcoin, you think it's the arts. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing that is kind of refreshing and kind of daunting in a way for me is that I would read the uh, New York Times from cover to cover every morning. But the one section I always had problems with was the financial pages because it seemed so dry. It seemed like the pages for the eggheads, you know, Dow is up a quarter of a point. This, you know, S&P 500 is so dry. But now that I hear people talk about Bitcoin, to me, it seems like art because it seems like they're doing the same thing that artists would do. Like, Clay, whenever you talk to me about Bitcoin, I says, imagine a world where this is happening. Like, we're, <laughs> it's like a movie trailer for the future, you know? So that to me is, is a stunning departure from the way finances were always given us before. But to me, it's a little daunting to say, hey, that's what artists do. Stay out of our territory. <laughs> you just give me the concise percentage points that something went up and down, and I'll create a new world. Thank you very much. Um, so, yes, what I love about it most is um, when you encounter somebody who's really into Bitcoin, they're passionate about it, they're zealots about it. It's almost like a vegan in a way. They want to tell you right away that they're into Bitcoin and right away what you can do to help change the world and why it's so important. I joke that the worst 
thing in the world or talking about Bitcoin, I warn people, I say, you're about to invite like a cross-fitting vegan who just came back from a <laughs> yoga retreat in Costa Rica to the dinner party. They will not shut the fuck up. <laughs> they have so much to tell you. <laughs> yeah. But look, artists engage that passion by definition. Yeah. And if a new idea emerges in the world that is messianic in some circles, godlike, yeah. all encompassing, how does an artist honestly turn their head? Yeah. No, you can't. I mean, our job is to keep an open mind towards everything at our peril. We will close it, right? And there's a burden there, right? If you're open-minded, which we look at with a kind of gleeful naivete when we're young, but now there's evil in the world, so I, I have to stay open to that too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, what is this about how uh, all the smart people are filled with doubt and all, <laughs> all the ignorant people are absolutely sure they're correct, right? Yeah. That's the danger of it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. You have to, I think you have to just approach everything with a completely open mind. You know, there's a lot of people in podcasts who speak to people they don't even like or agree with, but that's, they feel the importance of a conversation. And that's in advertising, we kind of love that rubbing of uh, conflict because that's where everything interesting happens. There's never a headline in a paper that said, bank not robbed today. What we love is bank robbed three injured, blah, blah, blah. So that's where advertising kind of lives. Look over here. Look at this thing. It's not the typical American family doing nice things. There's something at play here. And so there would be a similar draw or allure for an artist to go into that space where not conflict, but where there's friction yeah. with popular culture. Arguably, that's a fairly new, that's a two-century phenomenon, old phenomenon in the arts, because 500 years, you just painted the Virgin Mary. Yeah. Well, you weren't exactly pushing any boundaries. Right. Maybe, yeah. Although there's always conflict, you know. You're pushing your personal vision. They say uh, Michelangelo had a, an argument with the Pope, and he said that if, if you don't stop asking me when this will be done, I'll make the devil's face your face. Oh, that's awesome. To the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you got to put up with Michelangelo. He's the guys who can do it. Yeah, so. Okay, so okay, so then sure. In your your own wrestling creative endeavor, that's you're never happy. You're your worst critic. You're all those things. Yeah. But when you go out into the world with a message that you know people see you as a zealot. Yeah. You'd be hard pressed not to turn your art into propaganda. Yeah. To some extent, it all is, isn't it? You know, is there a piece of art that's not propaganda? Is Jackson Pollock not propaganda for a new way of looking at art or, or addressing what paint is? I mean, even if you're just painting uh, dogs playing poker, it's kind of a propaganda, right? <laughs> or all the presidents sitting around the table playing poker, that corny. Sure, the, the parody of the dogs. Right. <laughs> it is propaganda for what America could be, you know, yeah. or any film that you've ever seen. Even Star Wars, we're rewatching some Star Wars last night, and it just boils down to good and evil and not putting your trust into a megalomaniac. Yeah, famously Spielberg used, or, or Lucas used pieces of Triumph of the Will, shot for shot, in the original Star Wars. Oh, yeah. And Triumph of the Will was Lenny Riefenstahl's propaganda piece celebrating the Third Reich. Yeah. I mean, the analogies keep going, keep going. It's even... When he did the first cut of the first Star Wars, 
he didn't have the fighter scenes yet, so he just put bombardier footage from World War II in the cut as placement for what would be when he got around to it. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Well, again, so propaganda then, if we're going, it's you're persuading an audience. You have a vision, you have a mission, you're wearing it on your sleeve, you're saying, look at this, change your mind. Yeah. Why then is propaganda maligned? Are we afraid of the arts? Um, I think most people who can't control it are afraid of it. And most business people can't control it. I mean, the agency, a microcosm of that. There's business people. There's a lot of money at stake. And they have these rooms full of creatives that smoke pot. They come in late. They leave early. They wear cargo pants. <laughs> you can't control these people. And honestly, the ones who are the best, you definitely can't control because they're just picking away at your company to find that conflict point and serve it right up to you. They'll come right out and tell you, you work for GM. GM is killing the planet. <laughs> what are we going to do about it, GM? You sit around a table with the people at GM and they hear this. It's not news to them, but they don't want to pay people millions of dollars to tell them that. <laughs> right? That's the conflict point. How do we make people feel good about the fact that they're buying a new car? Yeah, wow. Right. So the creatives then are... Well, in an agency setting, you bring them to the boardroom table very carefully, very deliberately, and knowing that it's going to get weird. Yeah, no, you have an account person set it up very nicely and professionally, and then you have the strategist lay out the strategy in a very strategic way, backed with numbers and poll numbers and results that they found, and then you have the creative basically tell them the truth, <laughs> if they're doing any good. And most people will hesitate, most clients hesitate, and that's when you press play, on a video where you talk to a hundred people about petroleum-powered cars and they tell you what they think. We didn't put words in the mouth. This is what people are saying in Times Square hmm. or colleges or McDonald's hamburgers or anything that needs advertising. Sure. Yeah, you're not going to go get them otherwise. Fascinating. And so you were a creative director. Yeah. That's cool. I'm picturing you just rolling into the office, hitting in the bong. <laughs> no, no, no. You no smoking in the office, but as soon as you get out of the office, not everyone's an alcoholic or they smoke too much or they have someone. They they run marathons every two weeks, whatever it is, you know, their personal their personal fix, you know. Yeah. yeah. But of the people in the agency, they're the, they're the only people that are sarcastic. Fascinating. Yeah. And have their closet creativity somewhere else. And yeah. And they're usually great at that other thing too, you know. Yeah, I would think. And now, bring it back to creatives and the challenges of exploring something as abstract as Bitcoin, as money. I rack my brain trying to see if money was the subject of much art. Mm. And all you really come up with is some Jesus and the money changers, you know, yeah. flipping tables mm. and things like that. And I wonder if we're so new in this Bitcoin renaissance that we haven't jumped into metaphor and or tapped the mythic stories for better analogies and better ways of expressing this utopian future that I would present to you. Yeah. What's the best argument you've heard for it? What's the one that makes you shake your head? Shake my head in agreement? Yeah. I love the idea that it's akin to fire, that that was a species transforming leap 
that was made and humanity and human beings as we know them were transformed by a technological innovation, the harnessing of fire. And I see us doing that again now with the with perfect money. For the first time in human history, we have perfect money, just not just you know, salt or, or the, the rare and difficult to produce thing that was around. Right. Right. It's gold 2.0. It's the best money. It's perfect money. Yeah. And especially given our this digital future that is unfolding in front of us. And people who are on the sidelines, why do you think they're on the sidelines? Well, I, I suspect when you were the first one coming back, I've, I've made this uh, analogy before, you brought fire into the grass hut, everyone thought you were going to burn it down. There's a little bit of fear that comes with any change. We see this all the time. We, we aspire to great change all the time. We can talk about it. But when faced with it in hard form, we run away. Yeah. Or we're incredibly apprehensive and skeptical. We like the 2.0. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Initially, something brand new seems scary. And then someone will do it second time and make it a little bit more palatable. Okay, I'll try sushi. They yeah. said it was raw fish, but now it's not so bad. And before you know it, you can't live without it. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and this is money 2.0. But we've grown so... The, the money we have had has been maybe purposefully, depends on how nefarious you want to paint the world. We don't think about it. We spend all our days trying to acquire it, but we don't know what it is that we're trying to acquire. You know, human foibles are at play here, but we're at the 2.0 version. Yeah. And it's just a matter of time for it to percolate. Right. It's rare that someone sees and understands Bitcoin and doesn't, they don't go back. Yeah. And that idea that, oh, there'll be a better Bitcoin is a kind of vestige of our contemporary digital world. Right. We're used to seeing iterative advances play out before us. Mm. But in this case, all that iteration and development was invisible to all but the cypherpunks. And then Bitcoin emerges nearly perfect. Mm. Yeah. The people I know are most against it. They want to see a dollar because I know that's money. And, but you try and tell them that's not money. <laughs> The ones that zeros in a, in a computer somewhere, that's money. This is a piece of paper. Yeah, and I think that that notion is deep in a lot of creative expression around Bitcoin, too. It's the Bitcoin B. It's connecting to some stock photo of a golden uh, microchip coin. Yeah. And we can't get that out of our head. or We have to move through this time creatively. Uh, we're, we're still painting... We're still copying the painting we saw before. Yeah. Like the 500 years of, of uh, Mary Magdalene. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I think there are artists smashing through and getting into mythic level or, I don't know, I'm challenged to give artists out there the tools they need to express the profundity of the Bitcoin renaissance. Yeah. It's got to be grassroots from people who really care about it. And then it'll, it'll happen. You know, not a, not a day goes by. Sometimes two, three times in a day that someone, uh, that someone approaches me and says, do you want to do an NFT? You have, they, they, they all use the same language, which seems a little suspect to me. You have clean, <laughs> clean images of your artworks. And I would like to work out a, a negotiate NFT with you. And, uh, Run away. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Run away. Yeah. Okay. What is it? What does it even mean? Oh, my I God. wish I, I could. Tangent. I but, just go online and like 
Google it and it doesn't help. No, I think almost by design. It's intended to be an obscuring, just sham scam yeah. to prey on the naivete of artists right now to sell digital receipts. Yeah. And if you want to own a digital version of the receipt for the thing that you think you own, which is a JPEG, yeah. uh, go nuts. Uh, but it's a total distraction. And there's just a world, I think with all innovation, there's a a coterie of charlatans and scam artists that just move along with that gang. Yeah. Snake oil is as old as time. And I think we just have a version of digital snake oil right now. And all of those fantastic salesmen of, that we would characterize in black and white movies are now among us. And I would say a whole bunch of them are selling NFTs or trying to entice you. They need you. Right? Yeah, they need the art. Yeah. So I would just run away. It, it too shall pass. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And it's interesting. I know that you're a Bitcoiner, but but there's a deep misunderstanding with crypto and Bitcoin and all these things. So it, it gets really confusing really fast, which makes my job harder still because right. it's difficult to find artists working and who understand Bitcoin sufficiently. Yeah. Right? It's hard enough to find good artists. Now I got to find one that understands Bitcoin. Right. Woo! Yeah. Be like, you know, if I was transgender and I like men and I, <laughs> right, I'd have to find a woman or whatever. I'd have to find a woman. We can because, arrange all this for you if you like. <laughs> in New York City, I think we can organize this. Right? There's probably an app specifically yeah, yeah. for this. But artists are generally self-motivated. Right? There's something inside them has called forth, called them forth to express themselves. Yeah. The muses, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Are speaking through them. And then you have this adjacent technological advance that with profound or deeper understanding you realize is affecting everything in your life. And very soon it's in the soil that your muses were standing on. Mm -hmm. And it's informing that now too. It's this mycelium mm. and in short order by, by human standards, mm. the world will be on a Bitcoin standard. I'm certain of it. And then what does it even mean to be an artist, a Bitcoin artist? Or yeah. will all artists be Bitcoin artists? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? This is what the future will tell us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Coming to actionable ideas, because that's me off on my utopian. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what can I do for you, Clay? <laughs> Let's gather this pitchforks uh, in the streets. Of, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I'm a photographer and photography is a very difficult space to explore these abstract ideas. Right. Because I need a world in front of me with light actually falling on it right. to go and then talk about a, a utopian future. Mm -hmm. I'm in a very tricky bind mm -hmm. because I need the world to exist for it to be rendered by me. I see. And the world I generally imagine that Bitcoin will bring forth isn't quite here yet. No. So I, portraits of Bitcoiners yeah. is an obvious choice. Right. But fairly limited to me right now. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. But given that a lot of artists aren't as constrained and can just take a pencil or a paintbrush. Yes. Or a hammer and a chisel or what have you. Yeah. They can go and express themselves. Yeah, that's the absolute beauty of it. You know, even as a writer... You don't even need a computer, just a pencil and a piece of paper. And you're kind of off to the races. If you have an idea, 
everything else just kind of gets in the way of it, right? Yeah. When we first started this this advertising agency, my wife, she had always worked at big agencies and so had I. And uh, so I said, okay, so we have to go around and we have to interview people and we have to interview people who do the kind of work that we want to be associated with and then create a website and post this stuff and this will be our way to get new clients. We interviewed you, Clay, and, and shot you for a day, videotaped you for a day. And uh, she said, oh, what are we doing all this for? But for an artist, it's a very obvious thing. You have to make the thing for people to want it. You can't say, well, imagine a painting, right, that'll be on your wall. And the colors are kind of this way, and the composition is this way. Interested? <laughs> Nobody in the right mind would lay out some bread for that, right? But if you have to make them and then hope that people will come to them, right? Yeah. So you have to create the world and hopefully people come along for the ride, pull them into it. And that's a unique place that an artist can play a role, right? I say that we're the tip of the spear to kind of prime the minds of the rest of the world because we can present that utopian future or whatever. Right. That fair world. Yeah. I think filmmakers are especially great at that. Yeah. We can all imagine what it would look like post-apocalypse and because we've seen a hundred movies depicting exactly what would happen. <laughs> yeah, it's true. What your dog would look like as you're walking through the barren streets of Detroit or wherever, you know. Yeah. And I wonder, too, if, if all these zombie movies or all this post-apocalyptic stuff, even the Terminators, or the, aren't priming us for a world economic forum future instead of a Bitcoin future. They're just softening us to acquiesce. Yeah, it's all priming. I mean, even, even video games. I had this discussion with someone and it's like, it's just a primer for 15-year-old kids in Manhattan to know every weapon in the world. You're a 15-year-old prep school kid with sensible khakis and a nice haircut, but you can tell me how, how many rounds go in an AK. That's cool. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of neat, but that's just me. It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool, but it's, uh, you have to see it for what it is, right? Yeah, almost like we're misplacing some of the potentiality of our species. I often think that when I watch five-year-olds memorize every dinosaur, that why aren't they recognizing plant species in their backyard? We're so detached, but our brains are ready to do it. Yeah. And so that I can't speak to a 15-year-old brain, but, yeah. but all of these things were just slightly detached or greatly detached from nature and its, its gifts and its resource abundant knowledge and it fills up with other stuff yeah it's interesting the montessori method is that where they allow an open classroom and whatever the kids into that week which will be dinosaurs this week and you know the geography next week and uh, you know legos that whatever they're into they can go freely around the classroom and investigate submerge themselves in africa if they're into africa today and stegosaurus next week cool yeah and then the teacher there i guess to give structure yeah. I'm kidless, so I don't have a yeah. total uh, handle on that. But I like it. I, I know there's a program that teaches you, like, it gives you the same curriculum as Alexander the Great had. Like, That's cool. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, I wonder how those kids turn yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but Can the, you make a conqueror? I don't know. <laughs> the premise is interesting, right? That we're seeing the entire world through our contemporary veil. And... There is a utopia for most Bitcoiners that awaits. How do we present that? And how do we 
are there mythic stories of, is there anything from the past that can back us up? And if I were to paint Jesus, you know, tossing the money changers out of the temple, uh, would anyone even get it? Would anyone ever even bring that mythic or allegorical mindset to my work? Unless I renamed it something or I put, I swapped it out for dogs or presidents or... <laughs> yeah. Well, I think these moral tales really help us, especially when we grow up with them. We talked about Star Wars, but we grew up with these tales and they're embedded in our DNA more so than any biblical story, I think. I can talk to a classroom of 18-year-olds now about R2-D2 and like Luke Skywalker. They know exactly what I'm talking about. In advertising, we build um, personality types based on... Uh, personal archetypes like the sage and the magician and the creator and all those things. And they're all embedded in those stories, right? That's the sage, that's the evil villain, that's the professor, that's the magician. Probably film is the best way to kind of build these allegories and get them into the, the common consciousness of everyone around the world. And then after it's in there, you just say, Bitcoin, it's about Bitcoin, really. <laughs> Yeah, It's about digital currency, really. I agree that film is a very powerful form of storytelling, and there's a reason that bazillions of dollars are spent yearly in making films across every domain and every genre. But it's a very difficult thing to do by yourself. And so an artist needs to have a collaborative mind to do that. And that's in my case, I found that not to be terribly hard, but I'm fairly extroverted. Yeah. collaborative type but for the tortured cliche of an artist he's probably not going to make much of a filmmaker or he's going to be the yelling type that he makes one and no one wants to work with again exactly no i think so that's that's really yeah i was directing for a while and the reason why i stopped because gathering a crew and convincing everyone that this is the mission we're on and just we're going out there we're going to do it it takes months and months just to convince and get everyone penciled in and hi yeah, yeah. And then still, what do you say, right? To find the appropriate metaphors to build an entire narrative is hard. And I think similarly in painting something, what can you make that isn't just knocking someone over the head with, look, it's got a Bitcoin B on it, the Bitcoin symbol, right? Money has never been the subject of artwork. and But now we're in this weird place where it is the... Yeah. It's the thing that's changing us. Hmm. And I doubt, even looking back at the oldest artworks we have of people's hmm. hands and gazelles and things on the caves, yeah. I don't recall fire being yeah, the maybe centerpiece. Just with sticks right, the fire was lighting the scene <laughs> yeah. for them to paint. But it was the thing that changed. Yeah. And maybe we just to move through this a little bit. And, and as Bitcoin percolates, say it reaches a 10% adoption rate mm -hmm. I don't know. the internet when it emerged was it is a transformative technology absolutely and new art forms have emerged on it nfts aside arguably photoshop is now cloud-based and whatever i'm intrigued by what comes next if you had to advertise bitcoin yeah what in the world well, you have to humanize it, and also you have to show that it's trustworthy. That you're not going to put all this um, into this currency that will be gone once a government says it can no longer exist, right? So it would have to be friendly, and it have to be 
an app of a personality to it. Well, just stop right there because the trustworthiness is a funny notion because in Bitcoin we say don't trust, verify. Right. So we're going we're gonna to have to flip that or that's our little place of conflict, <laughs> of friction. I mean, every bank and every bank markets themselves as a trustworthy place. Right? Sure. And now you are the bank. So you trust yourself. Yeah. I'm, I can't even imagine. I look forward to seeing a Bitcoin campaign or, or something. The irony is there's no Bitcoin ad agency. There's no Bitcoin CEO. There's no corporation. It just exists. Yeah. It's funny because last year everyone was talking about just that and asking agencies whether they would get paid in Bitcoin. No, the first they would ask, how do you feel about, oh, it's the future? Absolutely. It's, you'd be a fool to ignore it. Will you take payment in Bitcoin? No. <laughs> right? And now it's AI this last year at Cannes. Everyone's talking about AI. It's impossible to ignore it. It's a force of nature and you cannot ignore it. Will you be firing people to and using AI instead? No. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So we're one that makes me think that these agencies are just full of it a little bit. Oh, yeah. And they're just playing with every trend and stoking conversation for lack of a better yeah i mean i had a when this this ages me but when email first came around there was one creative director in the office that refused to have a computer and his assistant would open his email and print it out on a piece of paper and come in and show it to him and he would have his little glasses that you know his nose he would read it tell her what to write back <laughs> i had a temp job like that but, you know, very quickly, that, that guy is out of all the conversations. So being behind Bitcoin, being behind AI shows that you can participate in these conversations going forward. Sure. Yeah. And, and given the advance of technological change as a Gen Xer, all I can do with my friends is encourage them to stay on top of it. Yeah. Don't sleep on anything new. Yeah. And, uh, you know, tech fatigue or whatever, innovation fatigue is real as we get older. Yeah. And I think that plays a part in Bitcoin's adoption too. So I got my dad on and some, you know, I mean, I'm like, orange pilling people around me at this point. At this point, I have a podcast. I've been that guy at the table, the crossfitting vegan. Right. <laughs> so I still am. Yeah. Uh, I feel more comfortable now that my friend circles own Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But it's this next step. It's, it's not enough to own it it's to start and understand it it's to engage it it's for it to be inspiring to you like it is to me yeah since we can't hire an agency since there is no bitcoin ceo to invite to the boardroom for the stoned creative director to, to dismiss it as government the governments aren't going to probably would love it you know because it's anti-culture in a way it's still a subculture it is very much. And it's grassroots. It didn't come out of some corporate mindset or some government um, plan. It, it went against the government plan. So anyone who's into subculture or anti-culture has got to love it. For sure. No, it, it's kind of remarkable. As a lifelong kind of progressive artist type, I gravitated to it just naturally as just that. Like, let's go. This is rock and roll. This is, this is going to disrupt... This is, you know, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Right. And of course, look what happened to them. They, they just <laughs> caved. <laughs> but that mantra lives on. And I think Bitcoin is a perfect way to say, 
fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. And I love it for it. And I'm a mild-mannered fella. I'm not, you know, I'm not out there. I can't do a mohawk anymore. But I'm Yeah. You were talking about like staying up to date on technology. And I don't remember what director, but some film director said that if you have a little money and you keep your hair and you're up on the latest technology, you'll always be young. That's cool. I don't have any hair. <laughs> got a little money, but not. <laughs> well, I think you redefined eyebrows. If you still have your eyebrows. <laughs> eyebrows, there you go. <laughs> well, yeah, Mike. I think it's fun to talk to somebody who is, first of all, sitting right in front of me, two, a friend, and three, equally flummoxed by the challenges Bitcoin presents, but not because you don't have the chops. Yeah. You can paint. You can make films. You can do all these things. And it's a really tricky subject. It makes me really admire all the artists doing something as Bitcoin artists. Yes. Hopefully I get to talk to them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and if a CEO of Bitcoin ever emerges and, and comes talk to you, just ignore them. They're lying. <laughs> that's, that's a good run. <laughs> <laughs> run yeah. faster than the NFT, away from the NFT guys. Yeah, I think an interesting model as far as marketing goes is, is electric car and Tesla. And that they never advertised, they never did a commercial for Tesla because I think Musk knew that once he started, he could never stop, right? Once you start shoveling money and billions into that machine, once you stop, all your numbers will go down like crazy. That came up with a lot of resistance at first. Electric car, come on, what is it, a golf cart? Sure. And then you see one whiz down the street at 100 you know, miles an hour. You say, well, okay, it's not, but what if you get into an accident in that thing? You know, and then all the naysayers kind of come around. It's the safest car there is on Car and Driver and these different magazines. And eventually everyone started coming around. And now it's every man, woman, and child in America kind of knows it's the only place to go. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, he wasn't alone. There's all this ESG propaganda, there's all of this other stuff. There is an agenda at play there without going too far down the, into the weeds. But electric cars serve a lot of masters beyond just Elon Musk. Yeah. Bitcoin disrupts all the masters. Yeah. It really makes you a master of your own domain and each individual a master of their domain. It smashes even paradigms. They just don't exist. I mean, city-states is kind of the closest thing, but it's a city, you're your own city-state. Yeah. It's such an independent, freedom-minded technology that all of a sudden I have to reconcile that with my community and I, because I'm a communal person and I'm nothing without my, the people around me who know more about X and Y. It's really, this is a tricky one. Yeah. Tricky one. But perhaps just even this conversation, someone listening to it, two Gen Xers, it's out of touch and <laughs> airless. <laughs> yeah. Will, but, but not without discipline, not without other things that I think would serve anyone well, right? You're, you're painting something every day. You're drawing something every day. There'll be little signposts or something that people can latch onto and keep trying asking them these questions or asking themselves these questions because creativity is ephemeral. Yeah, the act itself, yes. And so who knows how this will, if this sparks something in someone. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Clay. There you have it. Be sure to check out Michael and his wife Lisa's ad agency at kangbino.com 
and to follow him on Instagram or Vero for a daily dose of painting and illustration. Links galore to Michael and his efforts are in the show notes or at thebitcoinmuse.com slash Michael Gambino. Thanks to my brother for the music. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to Michael for sharing his time, energy, and experience with the Bitcoin Muse. Onward.